Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. For the New York Institute for the Humanities, I'm Eric Banks. NYIH fellow Joshua Jelly Shapiro is a geographer and writer whose last book, Island People, explored the Caribbean in all its complexity. He's collaborated with Rebecca Solnit and Garnett Cadigan on a series of atlases that rethink a number of American cities. We sat down last year, just after Mardi Gras, to talk about New Orleans and its deep Caribbean roots. As it so happens, we are talking on the day after Mardi Gras, which seems quite appropriate. Josh, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Delighted to be here. I want to start out by asking you a bit about how you made your way to New Orleans. You were working with Rebecca Solnit on a series of atlases. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'm particularly pleased to be talking with you here on Wednesday after Mardi Gras and with you who uh, you know, pronounce the name of the city as people there do. Exactly. So that's a pleasure. That's what you get when you grow up in I'm Mississippi. A, I'm a Yankee, so, you know, I, I, I get found out there. <laughs> so my sort of initial story there is probably similar to a lot of people, which is that my sophomore year of college, myself and a couple of friends, spring break, you know, decided to take a road trip and drive to New Orleans, which was quite an adventure in all kinds of ways. Two Semitic-looking kids and two black kids driving through the South and mm-hmm. the looks that we got and the interactions we had. But I, of course, was drawn to New Orleans. Previous to that, I'm a big music person. I care a lot about music. New Orleans is, in many ways, sort of the mecca and seedbed for so much of the music that I care about, American music, and music from elsewhere. It's a great port town through which and into which so many of the sounds and cultures from the places to the south of North America you know, have entered our culture. And so it's a place that I was sort of drawn to intellectually in that sense. But just being there, you know, the, the sort of, life of the place, the street life of the place, is totally unique in the context of the U.S., as people have uh, been speaking about and writing about for a long time. So I sort of fell in love with it there. You know, in a word, when I first showed up in New Orleans and experienced the, essentially the ways in which people live life in public, the ways in which they know how to enjoy life, I really felt, I think, like Lafcadio Hearn famously remarked, when he turned up there at some point, I believe, 1870s, 1880s, he had been in Cincinnati for a while, and he said, I would sooner live in New Orleans in sackcloth and ashes than return to Ohio. <laughs> I've never spent a lot of time in Ohio, but I, I, I know what he was talking about. I think that it's a place that, that gets under your skin, and it did me. But to fast forward, you know, a decade or so, I was in graduate school out in California doing a degree in geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I began working with Rebecca Solnit on these atlases. Uh, the first one was of San Francisco, Infinite City. Second one was about New Orleans. Then we eventually did a third one on New York. Which is the most recent one. That's correct. right. Yeah, nonstop metropolis about New York City. And all of these atlases were sort of predicated on the idea that, that anyone who lives in a city could map it in their own way. Cities contain a sort of infinity of maps and of stories. I, as I mentioned, was doing a degree in geography, which is to say I'm a geographer alongside being a writer. So I'm absolutely sort of into maps as a way to chart place, but also to tell stories. 
And I think that essentially when we started the project in New Orleans, which is called Unfathomable City, we partnered with a, a woman there called Rebecca Snedeker, who was the sort of co-editor on the project, lifelong New Orleanian. And I knew a lot of people who I thought would be sort of great contributors to the project, writers and, and music people and culture bearers, so to speak. So that's how I became involved in that. I love this volume, and it has so many different maps, so many different essays. It's a metaphor, but the way that the essays map onto the maps is really kind of incredible. I've lived in New York for a long time, and I feel like looking at the New York volume, it opens up all these different ways of seeing New York in a different light and, and really thinking about both literal and, and metaphoric space in, in different ways or new ways. And the New Orleans one, I think, was in a strange way more eye-opening. I, I don't know San Francisco that well, so I don't feel qualified to make mm -hmm. a comment about yeah, yeah. it. When you were helping to put the New Orleans volume together, what was the most sort of surprising new way that you were able to see the city? Yes. Well, you know, working on the New Orleans Project was great in all kinds of ways. New Orleans, like New York and San Francisco, but even more so, I think, is a place that people who are from there are so deeply identified with it. I mean, you have to go back generations and generations to even qualify in the eyes of folks from there as being of it. But what we really wanted to do was to look at these things that the city's known for, but look at them in new ways. So, for example, you say New Orleans, people think immediately of jazz. They think of food. They think of several different things. But, for example, with jazz, we didn't want to do just a dry, you know, here's where a bunch of great musicians lived. That wasn't interesting to us. So what we did is called Baselines. It's a map that charts the low end, as we put it, in New Orleans, which is kind of an extended riff on a metaphor, which is that, this is a place whose you know, elevation is very low. It's sort of a city that's built on the mud. It's at the bottom of the Mississippi. It's where the kind of effluvia of the continent flows into the Gulf. But what we did to sort of chart that is we did look literally at mud. The background of the, of the map is mud. But then we, we endeavored to map the low end, so to speak, of New Orleans music. So it's tuba players, bass players. I did an interview with the great bassist George Porter Jr. was mm -hmm. the text for that one, known for his work with the meters, among others. That's just an example of saying, okay, cities are known for things. They have these kind of icons, um, these symbols. Uh, but we've always wanted to kind of unsettle those things and say, yes, okay, jazz. But how can we give you a sort of story you may not know or that's unexpected yeah. about that? There's a way that they do get reconfigured in really fascinating ways. Your essay in the book, which I particularly enjoy, and, and it's a way that I, I just never thought about New Orleans in this context, is its particular place in the banana trade. Yes. I vaguely knew that bananas were a relatively recent introduction to the American palate, but it had never quite registered just how much they offered a way of seeing a very interesting history of New Orleans that brings together some incredible local personalities and figures, and, but then also this kind of strange thread through the history of New Orleans music, which links Louis Primo with Lil Wayne, which I found, <laughs> I found fascinating. How did you come up with that as a sort of way of refocusing the lens on New Orleans yeah, history? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the themes of that map was essentially just to pose a question about where is the city? Where does it end? Uh, what are the other places that it contains? You know, because all cities, uh, but especially port cities, you know, contain these sort of traces and elements of other places. And New Orleans is one of these places that was so tied to the sort of lands and peoples to its south, to Latin America and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And that, as you mentioned earlier, you know, is a, a particular sort of interest of mine, a part of the world I've spent a lot of time. And so when I started to think about what makes New Orleans this fascinating place in the context of the U.S. 
as a place that's thought of as iconically American, but also a little bit foreign, right? It's a little different. There's a Spanish tinge. There's all these ways in which people have talked about the difference of New Orleans. Is it when I started digging into that, and especially as a geographer who likes to think about place and how is it that places are linked, immediately you come up against the story and the ways in which the banana trade shape the city, the ways in which the steamships and boats of uh, first the Cayamel Fruit Company, Standard Fruit Company, eventually the United Fruit Company, which uh, Sam Zamuri, famed as the banana man in New Orleans, eventually acquired United Fruit, our controlling stake in it. This sort of economy of bananas, which as you mentioned, were the first tropical foodstuff really that became a part of Americans' daily diet over 100 years ago now. New Orleans became the big port where bananas came, where they entered the U.S. And these companies, it's remarkable. People who know Latin American history know the United Fruit as this, you know, huge, important and vexed, if not you know, really sort of um, nefarious, yeah. nefarious role in Latin American affairs and history. But you just look at routes of these boats and what the map is literally is we have a sort of detail map of New Orleans of the city and here's where bananas, here's the warehouses and the, the ice king where he had his ice so they could pack the stuff and mm-hmm. bananas foster Brennan. So we map bananas in the city, but then we also map the shipping lines that connect New Orleans to all the islands of the Caribbean to Central America in particular, to Honduras. You know, before there were sort of cruise ship lines, people would take cruises on these boats and the Great White Fleet on these United Fruit boats. Um, it was a way that people moved back and forth uh, between uh, the American South and the Caribbean. And bananas just shaped the whole thing. They shaped the political economy of the city. But there are all these ways, as you mentioned, that then they became this great symbol and entity in American culture of the tropics, a symbol of tropical sexuality, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff and you can do a a whole you know discography if you like of songs about bananas that that became a big deal in american pop culture yeah and you outline what that history would look like the banana playlist exactly no you got the yeah louis prima going way back banana split for my baby a glass of plain water for me banana split for my baby a glass of plain water for me but then, of course, Harry Belafonte. The Banana Boat song, Deo, mm-hmm. 1956, which is uh, based on a, a work song from Port Antonio, Jamaica. Work all night and I drink a rum. Stack banana till the morning come. It's remarkable to think about that from his record Calypso. You know, it became as the first million-selling LP in history. You know, knocked Elvis off the charts. Yeah, it's um, amazing to think about. You know, a, a man of color in the 1950s that happened, and it's it's fascinating just to think about how and why, and part of how and why, at least in terms of the song he was singing and best known for, was. Bananas. Six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Daylight come and we want Six foot, seven foot, eight foot bunch. Daylight come and we want 
when did the banana trade depart New Orleans? It declined pretty extensively. Yeah, the heyday of, of the banana trade, I think, started to decline really throughout the latter half of the 20th century. You know, the port of New Orleans is not now in the center of the city, which it was. You know, the banana boats used to dock right there. Yeah. Um, and now the, the American economy needs a port at the base of the Mississippi, but it's sort of slightly upriver. It's outside the city now in certain ways. But for those key decades from you know, the early part of the century through after World War II. It was a huge shaper of the place's economy. And the fortunes that were made, uh, notably Sam Zamuri's fortune, you know, remains important to New Orleans. He bequeathed his house and a lot of his fortune to Tulane University. The School of Tropical Medicine, which is quite famous, was very literally sort of originated from the banana company's interest in not having their workers get sick when they're down in Honduras or Belize. The sort of afterlives of of the banana trade, not only in culture, but in the economy and institutions in New Orleans remain. How is it that New Orleans has defined itself for so long through, I mean, you you mentioned music, and that's obviously like one of the things we most associate with it. But but New Orleans, more than any other place, I think, in the United States, has a food identity that's so pronounced, and it's you know, it's quite complex. Do you have a sense about the history of, of New Orleans identifying itself ostensibly through food? Absolutely. I think that food along with music, along with uh, certain architectural elements or uh, even vegetation, the live oaks and these things, also language, right? I think all of them, in a sense, go back to the city's roots and history as a place which becomes a part of the United States, you know, in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. But before that, and then for several decades after that, is identified and self-identifies as in certain ways and not American place, which is to say that it remained French-speaking for several decades after it became part of the U.S., uh, partly because of people who came there from the old French sugar colony of Saint-Domingue, which became Haiti after the revolution. It was a place that was controlled by the Spanish in colonial times. And with the result that the history of culture in New Orleans, uh, for example, that enslaved people were able to gather on Sundays and play music uh, as a big part of why the sort of musical history there has happened how it has. I think that food and the ways in which the sort of unique cultural mix of New Orleans, uh, which is to say it's a slave port, it's a place that was Spanish, was French, it was all these things that were not English, essentially, resulted in this remarkable culture, which is different from the places around it, food absolutely being one of those. And in a place that, from way back, was a port town, and like many port towns, was a place where people uh, had a particular interest in having a good time when they got off the boat. It's a place that uh, really thrived with and nurtured the sort of pleasures and sins of the flesh, eating being one of them. And you were just down there for Haitian Carnival. I was there, yeah, for a few days last week, sort of in the run-up to Mardi Gras. You know, all these different crews have their days, their parades, and their parties and balls. And I was there to take part in a new one started by musicians friends of mine associated with Preservation Hall, which is a great institution there, nurturing jazz traditions, as well as some folks from the quite popular rock band Arcade Fire who live there, Wynn Butler and Regine Chasson live there now. And they have deep ties to Haiti. Regine's parents are Haitian. And so they were very interested, along with Prez Hall, in activating, so to speak, these old historic links between New Orleans and Haiti, and Cuba as well. They have this new film out called Tuba for Cuba. But Haiti and, and Cuba are, are deeply present in New Orleans. They certainly are for me. I've spent a lot of time in both places, as well as in places like Trinidad. And it's a remarkable thing for me to even just walk around New Orleans and say, this feels like Havana. 
this feels like Port-au-Prince, this feels like Port-of-Spain. Those things are sort of visceral for me since I've spent so much time in that part of the world. But yeah, this carnival crew, they're sort of just getting it off the ground. But so they, how, how old is it? This was just the second year, and one of the top bands, one of the great bands from Haiti, Bukman Experience, was there. But it was, it was a wonderful thing. It allowed a sort of opening of a conversation about these old links. We all paraded to Congo Square, which occupies a, a central place in New Orleans cultural history as the place where slaves and free people would congregate on Sundays in the 19th century to essentially celebrate and talk about these links and to say that New Orleans is, as I say, this iconic American city, but it is that, I think, in all kinds of powerful ways because of its historic links to elsewhere. And it's a place where you can feel those links, you can feel the ways in which the story of the Americas and the story of the African diaspora is a story of these linkages and of shared stories. And New Orleans is a place that's that's overflowing in, in stories and people wanting to tell you those stories and to dance to them. The last several years in New Orleans history, I think really after Katrina, there's been more of a sense of New Orleans freighted racial history, and particularly with the fight over the monuments in the last couple of years and their removal, along with the recent discussion about racial masquerade and blackface, all sorts of elements of that, and Mardi Gras celebrations. It does seem that this is a moment when people in New Orleans are really thinking about their history and becoming conscious of it, you know, in a different way. And I'm curious how you've noticed that or thought about that the last few times you've spent time in New Orleans. Absolutely. No, those questions are really, um, you know, coming to the surface, I think, in powerful ways and important ways. It's also the case that New Orleans just celebrated its 300th anniversary. So those anniversaries are always a good moment, right, for thinking about where one has come from or the past. I think that the conversation in New Orleans, of course, about history and the particular histories that are celebrated or hidden uh, is one that, of course, dovetails with a national conversation right now. These things are going on everywhere from Charlottesville to Chapel Hill to here in New York City. Mm-hmm. But especially in southern cities. Absolutely. And for us, you know, having worked on this atlas, one of the really animating questions behind this book is the question of what histories are visible which ones are invisible? How do we sort of chart the histories that are invisible? How do we contest or think about narrating the past in in new and hopefully liberating ways? I think that the movement in New Orleans to uh, bring down some of these monuments, Beauregard and, and Jefferson Davis and all the rest, has sparked a really important conversation in that city about the ways in which it's past as a slave port, as a place where slavery thrived, has been happening in all kinds of important ways. And to me, those conversations are, you know, only to be welcomed. And of course, they're manifesting themselves in certain ways in Carnival. There's a deep history in New Orleans of a couple of the really sort of Auguste and and old Carnival crews, you know, Comus and Momus. And there was a moment a few decades ago, actually, when a new Sydney ordinance said that if you don't integrate, uh, you're not allowed, we're not going to give you permits to march. Which is only to say that these conversations in New Orleans, because public revelry in the streets and, and parading is so much a part of the culture and the identity of the place, that certain of these tensions and questions inevitably get worked out or get addressed or not addressed in those contexts. Has the reduced size of the city affected that? The population being so much smaller than it was, and also a, a great number of people who 
were not in New Orleans before 2005. Has that really affected the way that you think this conversation has taken place in New Orleans? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's fascinating. I mean, one thing about demographic recent history of the city is that many of those who left, right, as we know, were those who were among the poorer citizens of of the city. Among those poorer citizens, of course, a preponderance were African-American, such that the racial makeup and, and complexion of the city has changed since Katrina. It's become, to put it bluntly, a wider place. And that, I think, is a is a sort of matter of some concern, right, for people who care about the deep traditions of New Orleans, who care about its legacy as this remarkable font for African-American culture in the U.S. and for cultural forms that have spread everywhere. And so inevitably, I think that that sort of history has, has shaped things. But you also talk to people there and, and It is the case that after Katrina, a lot of people moved there. There's been a lot of energy. There has been a sort of influx, if not of investment of a sort of large-scale kind, certainly an investment of energy and thought and thinking about what makes New Orleans special, about how to sort of preserve and celebrate and grow what makes it special. Those are dynamic and active conversations there. And uh, a lot of the people I care about there, you know, doing remarkable work to sort of bring the culture forward and also to, as we were saying, mark its history and Mm -hmm. and to make certain histories visible, not only in terms of, by the way, taking down monuments and saying these monuments were erected in the late 19th or early 20th century to essentially hail white supremacy. This is not just sort of uh, neutral markers of the past. This is why it's important to think about it, why it's perhaps important to take them down. But there's also concerted efforts to create markers of the sort of triumphs and advances. For example, now you have Plessy Ferguson Foundation, which was founded by descendants of Homer Plessy and Judge Sean Ferguson. Of course, Plessy Ferguson being the famous Supreme Court case that established separate but equal as the law of the land for many decades and until Brown v. Board of Education. But in any case, the Plessy Ferguson folks, among others there, have been putting up plaques outside, for example, integrated New Orleans public schools, um, putting up plaques where Homer Plessy refused to get out of his seat on the train. So that there is a real effort to celebrate and mark and make visible New Orleans' proud history of civil rights activism, of sort of social progress. And I think that that is also important to note and celebrate. This is not just about removing statues. It's about celebrating the aspects of the past there that that can be built on for the future. Well, it's something that a lot of cities can learn from New Orleans on that count. And um, I really appreciate your coming in and talking to us about New Orleans. And I hope you can come back and talk to us about Havana. Absolutely. Fantastic. My pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Happy Carnival. This podcast has been brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU in conjunction with the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. Our producer is Caitlin Nicholas. For more information, or if you'd like to subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at nyihumanities.org. That's one word, nyihumanities.org.